Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Coming to you from the, oh no, it's Troy Hunt again, what do I have to do today department? Uh, I'm already on, on my bed with the blanket over my head. I'm ready. Already afraid. <laughs> we'll bring Troy That's on. That's why I like it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good. Job security for you. Well, yeah. we'll bring Troy on in just a minute, but first we have a little thing we like to call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? All right, I would like you to go to peer5.com. Nice. P-E-E-R-5.com. This is a serverless, peer-to-peer content delivery network for video. That's really interesting. All right, it's not really serverless. You actually have to have a a media server that you can send your video stream to, and it will disperse it, but... So it's but, only them that don't have the, the, the servers. Right. You have the servers, and so does every other customer. Now, before we talk about this, just check out the graphic in JavaScript on this website. Is that not the coolest thing? It's a line drawing of the Earth rotating with all sorts of shining electrons zapping around it. It's really amazing. But, uh, okay, now let's talk about it. So, I don't know if anybody who listens to the show in the old days remembers a little technology called BitTorrent. Yes. BitTorrent was very cool, and we we embraced it, but unfortunately, a lot of our listeners didn't. But the whole idea is that rather than serving a, a big stream of data multiple times to multiple clients, uh, you let the clients sort of negotiate what packets they have and what pieces they have, and then they sort of fill in the gaps. Right. Right, so you're offloading a lot of work to the client, and the client is none the wiser. Right, and this this all started when Linux started becoming popular, and every time they put out a distro, they just drop the servers to their knees because everybody yeah. wanted a copy. Yeah, exactly. You know, BitTorrent had very legitimate beginnings in that sense that it's like, okay, well, here's ten of us. Each of us downloads one distinct packet from the source, the seed, and then he, and each of us then gets the other packet from the other peers. So they have a live demo that you can do, and they're just constantly streaming this video. And when I got on, there was eight clients on, and within 30 seconds, there were nine clients, probably me, mm-hmm. and the HTTP traffic had gone down to zero, and it was all uh, maybe 85% um, peer-to-peer traffic. That's pretty cool. That is really, really cool. Really interesting. So the more people are watching, you know, let's say if this was applied to Netflix, the more people that are watching Netflix, the more it keeps up with demand. Yeah. That's cool. It is very cool. And, and I've never tried it. I'm going to, but even if it doesn't work, I love the idea of a video specific CDN. I think this is really the future because let's face it, cable TV is dead. And, you know, <laughs> more people are, are going to Netflix and Amazon Prime and all these video yeah. services. I, I even heard Google's going to have a video service pretty well, soon. It's, it's the hip thing to do. There's a big story about how Netflix and Amazon are spending more on new programming than the, the cable channels are. Yep. So this is clearly the future and, and a technology like this is going to be the backbone of it. I'm, Interesting. I'm guaranteeing you. All right. So there you go. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1326, which was the security panel we did at NDC Oslo. Oh, yeah. uh, Last year with Troy and Niall and Stephen Hans. Yep. Uh, and it got a ton of good comments. You know, we're we're almost back at NDC when this show comes out. So it's it's sort of a continuous stream. And uh, Matt Lacey had this comment. He said, near the end, Niall talked about developers not doing what security experts tell them. In my experience, security experts are reluctant to answer the question, what should a developer do regarding security? Because the only possible answer to that question is, it depends, or comes with qualifications about how secure do you want to be, or they don't want to give advice that will later be proven wrong. I love that question. How secure do you want to be? Oh, 50%. That's fine. Just a little secure. You're either secure or you're not secure, uh, right? I don't think that's true. There's definitely degrees of security. I've, I've always liked this, the, the club scenario description. Yeah. You know, putting a club on your car, it doesn't make the car impossible to steal. But if somebody wants a car, they'll skip your car because it's harder to steal than the guy next to you. Yeah, yeah. And then, 
You know, it's, it, so many guys are just script kiddies. As long as you're resilient to the script kiddies, there's a certain class of traffic that's just, you're not a good victim for her. I suppose you're right. I mean, how, how secure you are means how hard are you making it for people to actually break in? Right. Yeah. And and it's the big difference between you're a drive-by target and you are targeted. Yeah. And it's, life gets way harder when you're targeted. And I'm coming yeah. to this from an IT perspective. Okay, continue, Richard. Yes, yes. Uh, Matt goes on to say, and this is not Matt's first mug, by the way. Matt writes good comments, so I'm happy to read another one and send him another one. Uh what I think we need, but as far as I know, doesn't exist, is a prioritized, maintained list of things that can impact and improve security. I think that's the OWASP list, really. Mm. Mm. It can't be as simple as, here's a set of things to do and things you shouldn't do, because there are spectrums. It needs to be maintained because things certainly change. And it needs to be prioritized, so if an option isn't available, it's clear what the next best thing would be. Or if you're not using the best solution, then maybe you know another option to make your system secure. There are times when you can't do everything perfectly. I think that's pretty much all the time. Uh, say it's a platform where there isn't a reliable bcrypt implementation available. So what is the next best thing? Or what are the pros, cons, and side effects of using different options? Slower or more sophisticated encryption methods might be great, but there are still developers making the wrong decision about storing in plain text or a SHA-1 hash. Both of those are... SHA-1 <laughs> hash is effectively plain text now. Yeah, it's it's pretty much... And where's the central repository for such information from known experts? Again, I'm going to tend to point toward OWASP. Mm -hmm. It seems it's spread across various blogs and courses or in very technical language. It's great to say people need to learn this stuff, but if it's all spread out, how do people know what they need to know or can be aware of the gaps in their knowledge and address them? Lists of things you shouldn't do are great and are often entertaining, because I have many of these stories myself, but they need to be accompanied by guidance on what should be done. What do you think? Ah, uh, don't ask me. I'm not a security expert. We'll loop Troy into this for a second. Everyone would like a magic solution, wouldn't they? You know, I think we sort of look for for what what is the one thing that we should all do. Like if there was yeah. just one resource that we could do and we could just get this right and we'd be cool. That big red button that makes everything better. <laughs> I know. Like, hey, security in a box. And there are many vendors out there who will sell you many security in a box products. <laughs> Very profitable. <laughs> but it is a, it's a much more complex landscape than that. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yep. Uh, so, Matt, thank you so much for your comment at .NET Rocks Mug. It's on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks Mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We hash them, then smoke them. <laughs> in robes and slippers. <laughs> Sipping a nice Dalmore 15 by that the fire. That was a good tweet, man. <laughs> Ear, ear. All right. Uh, what can I say? Okay, let's bring on Troy. Troy Hunt is a plural site author, Microsoft regional director, and MVP, and a world-renowned internet security specialist. He spends his time traveling the world, speaking, and running workshops where he teaches developers how to break into their own systems before helping to piece them back together to be secure against today's online threats. He's also the creator of Have I Been Pwned? That's P W N E D. I remember the first time I heard that phrase was from you. The free online service for breach monitoring and notifications. Troy regularly blogs at TroyHunt.com from his home on the Gold Coast in Aussie land. How you doing, Troy? Welcome back. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks, mate. It's, it's been a while. Nearly a year, hey? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's been, been too long, my friend. Too long. And you are, I keep seeing on the BBC channels and things, you're a busy man. It's a funny thing with security. It, it sort of reaches the mainstream like few other things in tech do. I mean, it's right. like when was the last time you turned on the BBC and they went, oh, there's this new JavaScript framework out, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think yeah, everyone so would like much. it. Yeah. But What's when that? it's security, it, it resonates. Yeah, that's it. Well, you know, because everybody's got their data in these cloud services, yeah, for lack of a better word, a, a general word, you know, these, these services online, they've got our credit cards and they've got our data and we want to know if somebody's using it it affects well everybody. it's that 
as well as we're all so much more connected by so many things these days that yeah. sort of the, the technology and, and the exposure is is inescapable. Mm. I, I, for some reason, I'm still not entirely sure why, but I have something like 18 IP addresses in my home and it's basically just my wife and I and two little kids. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know what all these things are. Well, actually, yeah, yeah. I, I do, but, you know, I, I, I'm – I'm just not quite sure how we got to this point where we had so many connected things collecting data and sending it out. And you are relatively geeky, so, you know, it makes sense that you would have a few. Uh, but it, even the non-geeky folks, like, it's just IPs are the norm now. Yeah, and it's uh, it's there's a, an obvious trend here, right, in terms of the, the direction we're going. In fact, one of the things I'm finding interesting at the moment is is just the inability of a lot of our networks, our home networks, to even cope with it. So I've just helped my brother and his wife uh, redo their network. They just moved into a new house, and we wired the whole thing with some really neat uh, ubiquity gear. Nice. I think I saw that that post. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's funny. You know, I'm meant to be the security guy. I didn't know that my my writing about network things would would actually get so much traction. But uh, a, a lot of people have have then gone and, and done similar things by sort of building these these mesh networks across their home with lots of access points. And I, I got to be honest, I had kind of fun, like going into a house and installing all these in-wall access points and, and just getting Wi-Fi everywhere because you know that particularly with kids themselves over the next decade, they're going to have so many connected things that want to talk to the internet. Right. Yeah. I, I think it starts with being a little bit sane about what you actually connect to the internet, you know, uh, toasters, refrigerators. Do we really need them to be connected to the internet? Um. Well, yeah, I think this is a good good segue in, into the security side because one of the things you should not connect to the internet is your teddy bears. Right. <laughs> Let me just put that out there now. Your teddy bears will eventually disappoint you if you connect them to the internet. Okay, what's the story? <laughs> so, uh, that was just earlier this year, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, this was, uh, this was a couple of months ago. So there is, uh, perhaps was is a more apt term now, uh, a toy called a cloud pet. And the idea is is that you insert inside this teddy bear, it all comes pre-inserted, <laughs> you insert a, 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 a Bluetooth radio into the teddy bear as well as a speaker and a microphone. You basically turn the teddy bear into a surveillance device. Nice. And then, and, and this is not like, I mean, there's been these things before so you can spy on the nanny and stuff like that. But what this one was designed to do is you could – Talk to your child via the teddy from a faraway remote location via the magic of the internet, <laughs> and then the child could talk back to you via the teddy. And it, it all sounded mm. really cute and really so cool, sweet. and a bunch of people bought them. What could go wrong? Well, it, 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 it is also a little bit freaky in a Chucky kind of way. But it all sounded cool until they left their MongoDB publicly exposed and it got ransomed several times and nice. downloaded by other parties. Yeah, I don't know if we've talked so much about ransomware and and uh, what it is and, and how it works, um, but we should because it's becoming a thing. It's becoming very a very popular way to extort money from people. It look it's massive and it hits you in multiple ways. And if, if anyone's really interested in ransomware, I did a free course for Veronis, uh, I think just last year. So if you search for ransomware Veronis, you can sort of check out an hour of material on there that explains a lot of the mechanics of it. But look, in short, we, we often think of ransomware in terms of infecting endpoints. So your PC or perhaps your uh, non-technical significant others, relatives, <laughs> PCs, hopefully not your own. Right. For, for guys like us in this industry who keep things patched. But, yeah, we'd have various strains of ransomware which normally would encrypt files on the PC and then demand some Bitcoin. And they started to get sort of quite sophisticated as well, particularly last year was a really big year for ransomware. And they'd do things like, say, uh, there's a countdown timer. We're going to keep deleting your files all the way down to zero until you've got none left unless you pay the Bitcoin. Yeah. Nice. And they were sort of so well put together and organized. There would be support hotlines in different languages and links through to Bitcoin exchanges so that you can convert your cold hard cash into BTC and yeah. just Making very, very easier to pay. Well, this is the thing. It's it's like any business, right? They want to reduce the process or reduce the friction in order to actually go through and, and do what is ultimately payment fulfillment. 
and then you get a key back to unlock your encrypted files. And the the alarming thing is, is that for many of these strains, they work as advertised, that the key does unlock your files. Nice. Yeah. And when the crypto is good and the individual doesn't have backups, versioned backups at that, you, you kind of can't get past the point of saying it's not a bad ROI to actually pay for the key. Right. Right even though it just encourages it. Wasn't there a whole move by Kaspersky and a few other folks to, to fight ransomware where they would help you, you know, undo the, the, the encryption? The, the problem is, is that when encryption's done well, it's actually really effective. Sure. And mm. there, there were a few cases where there was ransomware that was reversed and there was a, a group going around, I don't know if it was Kaspersky or, or someone else independent, uh, that were going through reverse engineering these. But there are many cases as well where it was just done exceptionally well. Now, getting back to the, the cloud pet situation and the ransom there, what we saw particularly around December 2016, Jan 2017, is people were going around finding exposed MongoDBs that had no authentication. Yep. Right. So this is like literally database out there, publicly facing, uh, no credentials required whatsoever. And they were deleting the databases right. and then creating new ones called please read or you've been pwned and yeah. then putting instructions in there about how to pay Bitcoin to then get your database back. Yeah. <laughs> Except they weren't giving it back. I did a show with Niall Merrigan on this. Yeah. So, so th this was the problem apparently. And, you know, this will come as a shock, but <laughs> sometimes you can't trust criminals, right? So you, you <laughs> pay them the Bitcoin and then, then, then they go, thank you very much. <laughs> and if you take a step back j just for a moment and you think about the mechanics of this, it's a lot easier for an attacker just to drop your entire database right. than it is for to download potentially gigabytes or terabytes even of data and then make it available to you later on. What do you right. really reckon they're going to do? Mm. Yeah. Or, or, to, or to run a process in place to encrypt it in a way that, you know, you won't be able to access it anymore. It's so much easier to just drop it. The problem, of course, is, again, the no honor amongst thieves. Like, now there really is no point in paying ransomware because they may just be simply lying to you. And you're not going to get it back. So, the, the problem with all of these things is that you, you never quite know what's going to happen at the other end. So, you know, we've seen cases where attackers have uh, said, for example, we've downloaded the data from your database, give us X number of Bitcoin, it's always Bitcoin these days, yep. or yeah. we'll dump it publicly. And and that entire thing is based on trust. And actually, it's interesting. I did a talk in London in October at a wired security event, uh, and they're doing it again this year. If you're around London in October, go and have a look at the wired security event because it was fantastic. And there was a guy there who did a talk. He was an Israeli guy called Moti Crystal. And he was a hostage negotiator. Right. And he had now carved out a niche negotiating with online parties who had stolen data from systems and were demanding ransoms to get it back. So there's actually like a guy who does hostage negotiation for your data, which wow. I found amazing. That's really cool. Yeah, and yeah, he's telling the stories about how he does this negotiation. And in the talk, he shows a bunch of the screen caps where they're messaging with each other. And it'll stuff like how he uses what I can only assume are like Jedi mind tricks in order to try and get data back by doing things like using emoticons to try and build rapport and, you know, lighten the mood. And, and it, it's really cool. And, and like the guy was literally previously negotiating with uh, terrorists holding people hostage they're going to shoot. And now it's like, yeah, we want to get our data back. And he, he tries to do that. Huh. <laughs> I, I do think, and this is a part of the conversation I had with Niall over on Run As Radio, it's like one, you know, after 9-11, airliner hijackings basically stopped, except by pilots. Because it used to be when there was a hijacking, if the passenger sat still, they got out. In 9-11, that did not happen. And since then, you try and hijack an airplane, the whole airplane's against you, and they're mad. So, you know, as soon as the ransomware truth model is broken, that you're not going to get your stuff back, I, I just hope ransomware's done then. Well, I, I doubt it, and there's a couple of reasons for that. So, so number one, when it happens on the PC, on the endpoint, mm -hmm. you're very often seeing that happen against the, 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 the great technologically unwashed, <laughs> for want right. of a better term. <laughs> so people who are not tech savvy. 
And when they see that message pop up on the screen demanding Bitcoin, they're going to fall for that more so than probably the audience listening to this call. Uh, so there's that. The other thing is, is that unlike sort of physical hostage taking or, or hijackings, this can be automated so easily and right. then it can be run so anonymously by people living in places out of reach of a lot of Western jurisdiction, it is such an easy thing for these guys to run. And in fact, in the ransomware course, I show uh, products where it is literally ransomware as a service, where let's say you guys went, this looks kind of interesting. I want to get into this ransomware game, but I'm not actually a great malware writer. I'm going to go and use this ransomware as a service product to roll my own ransomware and then push it out to people. And I don't even have to know how to write malware. That, and that's the level it's gotten to. Jeez. So yeah, you can just uh, you know hire hire ransomware services and take a cut of the money. It's pretty sick. That is pretty sick. That, that's it. It's crazy. So what's the defense? Is this is this just about prevention? Well, there's there's a number of different things here. So first of all, in terms of how these machines are getting infected to begin with, it's really often. Due to unpatched vulnerabilities, and in fact, I'll rephrase that, patched vulnerabilities, but you don't get defense unless you take the patch, right? right? So yeah. we've got so many devices out there that are just simply not up to date. And look, I mean, part of this is, is then goes into the story of how do vendors push patches down and are they automatic or do you have to click boxes and things like that? Right. Because we know people aren't going to be proactive on the whole. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hold that thought, Troy, while we take just a moment to um, pay the bills. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard web and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment. .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200-plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. And you're listening to .NET Rocks. We're here with Troy Hunt. He's telling more scary stories of ransomware as a service. <laughs> And Richard just asked the question, what can you do to prevent yourself uh, from getting an, in an infection like this? And I guess you're talking about just make sure your patches are up to date. This is one of the reasons why I love Windows 10, because it just happens. I don't have to worry about it. Microsoft's not giving you the option if you're a regular mortal user. Yeah, the, the I mean, the sort of the forcibly pushing down patches is a good thing. I just set up a new PC for my father. Uh, and in fact, it was on my, my old Surface Pro first generation, which I didn't need anymore. And I went, you know, here, have this. Yeah. And installed Windows on it. And he's like, uh, well, you know, what? How, how do I sort of download the latest updates? Well, you don't. <laughs> it's like you go to bed and you get up the next day and your computer says it's updated and, and that's it. So that, that's a really important part of it. Uh, one of the, the ways that we've seen ransomware distributed in the past is we've seen exploits such as the, or the Angler exploit kit, which is an in-browser exploit kit which takes advantage of vulnerabilities in things like Flash and Silverlight and Java. Mm -hmm. And, of course, all of these now are blocked out of the box by Chrome and we've got other browsers that just, just simply don't support them unless you have to go and install them manually and basically insecurely configure PC. So we're sort of, again, moving past this point of, of having low-hanging vulnerabilities, but they really depend on people keeping their things current and up-to-date. Right. Yeah. Now, the other really big thing here is let's say you do get hit. There's some zero-day vulnerability which hasn't been patched and you've done everything else right, but you've gotten hit by this, this strain of ransomware. It's just encrypting your files. And if you can roll back to a backup, 
I mean, the worst that might happen is you lose a few hours or a few days worth of content. Right. But how many people do you think can actually roll back to a backup, let alone roll back to a version backup, and they haven't just overwritten their backups with encrypted files? You know, that's the challenge. And you have another issue, which I can think of, which is if I was writing ransomware and I saw that there was an attached hard drive with a bunch of backup files on it or a bunch of files, I would I would encrypt those too. So probably not a good idea to leave your backup external drive if that's what you're using. Always connected to your PC. Disconnect it. Well, the the challenge then is you've got, and I'm sort of picturing you, your average folks sitting at home trying, and again, it's not our audience here, but yeah. our audience is, uh, are the folks who have to go home and help their relatives <laughs> set this stuff up. Anything that requires manual intervention is going to eventually fall apart. It's, it's like the old days where you go, oh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll do a backup once a month, this external drive. As long as you're doing that manually, you're going to forget at some point in time you're going to lose stuff. And I really like a, a combination of approaches here. So I, I for example, have a, a Synology network-attached storage device. It backs up once a week to an external uh, device, so it backs up to an external sort of five-terabyte Western Digital-style book. I physically rotate that off-site every now and then, so I, I have one locked in a safe in a relative's house. Uh, so I rotate those, so I've got something to fall back to. Mm-hmm. And then on top of all that, I've got crash plan. So I've got cloud backup. And that works really well because I know that with crash plan, so long as it's backing up automatically, I can go and restore back to any single point in time. So if I get ransomware to, to yin yang, <laughs> I can at least go back and say, okay, what was the point where I last actually had a good copy and then pull that down? And, and I guess the implication here is ransomware is smart enough to not tip you off that it's running until it's actually encrypted everything. So you could easily have backed up your files as encrypted. Ah. That's the assumption you have to work on, right? Like right. what if everything is destroyed? And for those who have lost data before, yeah, once that happens, you, you sort of take a whole new view of how important backup strategies are. Right. Sure. And 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 more than one, right? I mean, that's the big thing. It's like, ah, I backed up, but now that backup's encrypted too. So... You need some kind of rotation of your backup so you have older ones. Yeah, and look, like none of this is particularly hard or expensive to do these days, but it takes time to sit down and plan it. And mm-hmm. and you've it's one of those things which is not cool. It's not a lot of fun. You know, you're not building new cool stuff, but you got to do it, it, particularly with the amount of data we've got these days. Yeah, it's just there's just so much to deal with here. And I still don't know, even after talking to you, what exactly I should do to protect myself other than just keep all my software up to date and, and use something like uh, uh, malware bytes or something that, that can sit and, you know, detect some of these things before they get activated. Well, then there's the whole sort of piece around how effective is antivirus. And right. And as opposed to the damage it does. Well, <laughs> there's always always that. I had a lot of trouble uninstalling McAfee from a machine last night. Yeah, they don't <laughs> like to be uninstalled, do they? <laughs> they don't like to be removed. And I'm sure that they will say, yeah, that's so malicious software, can't remove it. But uh, when during the removal process it kept asking me for money as well, I, I suspect that, uh, geez, I hope that wasn't ransomware. Yeah, who is the malware <laughs> here? <laughs> do you really need anything more than Windows Defender? It comes with every copy of Windows, and they seem to be taking good care of it. Well, that's that's the thing. So the, the reason I was removing this is I, I got a, a new laptop from Lenovo and it comes prepackaged with stuff and, and uh, McAfee yeah. gives you sort of a month and then it demands money. Right. And I was like, look, I'm not even going to give you the opportunity to get to a month. You know, that's it. You're out of right. here. Right. Because there is Windows Defender. And the, the thing about all of these is that they are very dependent on signature-based detection. Right. So right. they say... We know what all the bad stuff looks like. If we see anything that matches what we think the bad stuff looks like, we'll tell you it's bad. And the the problem is, and I, I think I actually mentioned this in that uh, ransomware course, we're seeing about a million new variants per day of right. ransomware. Wow. And at that rate, the signature-based detection just can't keep up. Right. So what we're starting to see now is a lot of organizations, uh, a lot of security companies, particularly those targeting the enterprise, are going towards this user behavioral analytics or, or UBA where they say, let's have a look at the way people normally behave, not just on their machines, but on their networks. And when we see behavior that deviates from that, 
then we're going to flag it. And then no matter what the signature of the individual malware is like, so long as it's causing an unusual behavior, we're going to flag it. I mean, I would think if you if if the operating system was just looking at a given file and saying, what's the program opening this file? Has it ever opened the file before? That sort of would stop everything. It's right. Look, it's a word doc. The only thing that should ever open a word doc is word. That's not true. So that the. Ch- that, well, that, I mean, um, antivirus probably likes to open it. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's one. <laughs> but you could open it with an, a custom app that you've written to open Word docs and look at right. them. I mean, there are utilities that do things with them. But the first time any given application opened a given file, isn't it a good time to sort of make a check? Yeah. But this is the perpetual challenge, too, because if you get too aggressive with that, then you have false positives. Right. And we know that as soon as people start seeing warnings too frequently, they tune out. They, they yeah. turn them off. But if you don't have them frequently enough, then you miss things. So finding that sweet spot is not an easy problem, and it's a social challenge too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you get people tired of it, they just hit okay all the time, then then they're going to hit okay when it's not okay. Yeah, that's that's the worry. So we really want to be showing these messages to people when there's something genuinely important that's happened, except doing that and not having the false positives is not an easy thing. Yeah. What else has happened since uh, we last talked? I mean, we're recording this about a month before it goes live. So if there's something like Google got hacked or Gmail that we missed, we're sorry, but we can't see the future. But before April 27th, (laughs) what are some of the other things that happened that we can talk about? Well, there's there's one thing which... I think is very exciting that's that's been happening since we last well it's been happening for years but I think we've sort of hit the tipping point since we last chatted and that's the adoption of HTTPS and yeah. by pure coincidence I did just push a, a course out to Pluralsight about what every developer should know about HTTPS but I genuinely think it's a really interesting thing that's a really good time to talk about because We've sort of reached this stage now where there is a mass exodus away from plain text unencrypted HTTP communications to HTTPS by default. Right. And, and we're seeing a huge shift now. So what we're, what we're actually noticing is that at present, something like just over 20% of the Alexa top 1 million websites are now serving content over HTTPS. That is pretty much doubling every 12 months at the moment. Wow. Now, it obviously can't keep on doing that, but that is a very, very fast shift. Uh, Now, that's really cool. And there are a few different things driving this. So one is that we're realizing how much uh, men in the middle or those who control our traffic are getting into our things. So thank you, NSA and (laughs) cohorts for helping us realize that. Right. But the other thing is, is that a lot of the barriers that we had to using HTTPS are going away. So, for example, one of the barriers was cost, right? If you want to get HTTPS, you've got to go and buy certificates. Well, there's Let's Encrypt now. You can go to Let's Encrypt and get certificates for free. Uh, there's Cloudflare. You can put Cloudflare around a website and get HTTPS for free. So it's actually a really, really good time to be moving now. Yeah, it's just being easier and easier to be able to, to do these right things. How important is it to to have, you know, verified signed certificates in order to use HTTPS or are people just generating them now? I mean, the browsers obviously will tell you this is not a known entity, but you can go ahead at your own risk. I mean, really, we're just talking about encryption. Well, we've got to sort of be clear about the, the benefits of what that gives us as well. So first of all, we, we talk about HTTPS. For most people, they go, well, well, that's for confidentiality. So people can't read my things. And that's probably what we most commonly think of because we, uh, for example, we look for the presence of it before we enter our passwords into a login form. But there are two other really important things about HTTPS as well. And one of them is integrity. So when we have an HTTPS connection, we can have confidence that between the client and wherever the HTTPS terminates, the data hasn't been modified. Right. And there are numerous precedents of the likes of, say, the Tunisian government modifying content on the fly. They were injecting keyloggers in Facebook login pages some Whoa. years ago because the login page was served insecurely. So integrity is really important. Another good example of integrity is I have noticed, and you guys have probably been on a Norwegian air flight before as well, if you're on Norwegian and you connect to the Wi-Fi, any 
page that you load over HTTP, they put a little aeroplane at the top of the page. There's a whole banner across the top, and the little aeroplane flies across the top of the page, tells you how long you've got to go. Wow. So they're actually inspecting your traffic, modifying the web pages that you're looking at, and injecting their own content into it. Hmm. Now, that's not intended to be malicious, but imagine what a nefarious party could do if they could modify all of the traffic you're loading. Sure. Lots. Lots. And and you wouldn't know, right? I mean, that's what always scares me is these kinds of exploits where it's just not going to be obvious that something's going on. So that's that's the other piece, right? So this is integrity. And then the, the third thing to think about, and you see this every time you go to a hotel or to a lot of other free Wi-Fi hotspots, is authenticity. And you see it because you open up your web page or you open up your browser, you've got 50 tabs still open because you like the rest of this, and every single HTTP tab suddenly becomes a login page for the hotel's captive portal for their Wi-Fi. Uh, been there. And what you're yep. seeing, if, if you have a look at the request, you're actually seeing a, re a request to, let's say, Stack Overflow, because they still serve the homepage or HTTP. You're mm. seeing a request to stackoverflow.com, but you're getting someone else's content. So they are literally DNS spoofing the result set. You know, I'm exactly. requesting the yeah. website I think I know, but I'm getting the other one. Mm. And when you make that request, all of your cookies for whatever website it is you're going to are sent to, say, the hotel. That could have auth tokens that could log you in. And that the whole point about authenticity is that it gives us confidence that the URL that we see in the address bar is actually the website you're talking to. Yeah. Scary stuff. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to change the IP address on my microphone. Sorry, took me a that while to funny. type in all those numbers. <laughs> uh, it's actually time to give away a Component One Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, Grape City Active Reports is the reporting platform for all your business needs. Design, publish, view, print, and export operational reports such as invoices, expense reports, tax and government forms, as well as strategic and analytical reports such as sales performance, budgeting, and revenue analysis. Active Reports gives you the operation and flexibility you need to turn your data into informative, pixel-perfect reports across the enterprise. And they, one of our original, original sponsors. Absolutely. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Glenn Gunnarsson. Ah, congratulations, Glenn. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. And Glenn won the Component One Studio, a big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And Troy, it's your turn. It's been a year. We're going shopping. What are we getting? So I was thinking about this before, and what I would do with my five grand is I would go and buy as much Internet of Things crap that I could <laughs> and just pull it apart and see what it does. Internet of crap. I've played with some of this before. I've found some pretty crazy vulnerabilities in some of these, and I would like a big playroom full of this stuff just to see how bad <laughs> a lot of it is. <laughs> yeah. And in case those of you uh, out there listening have not been watching the IoT things, uh, first of all, there is a Twitter account called um, uh, Internet of Shit, which is a, a really good account to follow. Right. <laughs> You'll get a pretty good idea of what's going on there. But we're seeing stuff like everything from there. Uh, there are devices to not only feed your dog while you're at work, but ah. actually have a little camera. So you can look at the dog, and here's the good bit. There's like a catapult inside the thing that you can remotely control to throw food at the dog and then watch <laughs> as the dog tries to catch it. <laughs> I love it. So there's there's that sort of stuff. There are uh, – what's the way to put this? Uh, multiple devices designed for discerning adults in the bedroom, uh, right. which have had some really, really bad security vulnerabilities <laughs> in terms good. of doing things like 
and we're trying to put this in a family-friendly way, but uh, doing things like disclosing the nature of the data that they collect, which can be a combination of data collected from gyroscopes and cameras. <laughs> oh, my, my, my. Have you got a picture of your vagina? Would you like one? Oh, that's you know, since we are there now, there's literally one of the devices which was in the news uh, only a couple of weeks ago, quite extensively, was a, a device with a camera that uh, had default credentials on Wi-Fi access points. So if you drove past a person's place and had access to it, you could literally get access to the camera. Yes. And the, the camera was on the end of a vibrator. What are we doing? I, Seriously, I, I think what? that's about as as far as we need to go. I mean, I, I'm only I'm only talking about com- toasters and refrigerators, you know, toothbrushes, forks, just bru- you know, hairbrushes. Why does everything need to be connected? That's just my question. I mean, well, we can get rid of so many security vulnerabilities if we just don't do stupid things. That that is definitely true. I, I think that this is this is sort of market differentiation or product differentiation within a really competitive marketplace, and sure. and the gadget space is enormously competitive. And when a vendor comes out and goes, well, you can get this toaster that's got no internet, but this toaster does have internet. You know that that oh, is God. a point of difference, regardless of how stupid it might seem to us. <laughs> I don't know if I told this story the last time, but I got a Samsung refrigerator now. Some information came out about Samsung. I think it was Samsung smart TVs that they uh, the government actually has a way to turn them on and listen to you in your in your room and and snoop on you um, and, and through these smart TVs, and you won't even know it. This is an, an NSA WikiLeak document or something. But I didn't even I didn't even know about that then. But this Samsung refrigerator has <laughs> has Wi-Fi. It has an app. And you know what the app does? Tells you what the temperature is. That's all it does. <laughs> Get up off the couch and stick your hand in the fridge. Is it cold? Good. But it's, it's worse than that because I, I would, I mean, I'm not a refrigerator expert, but I would imagine that it's always the same, right? Yeah, like, hopefully. What's the, the point? And, and if there's a problem, it goes beep, beep, beep. So well, why do I need this, this app? Is, if if only there was a technology to let you know if you'd let the door open or left the door open or not. You know, if we could solve that problem with IoT. It is. It beeps. If you leave the door open, it beeps. That's <laughs> yeah. smart enough. Yeah. Anyway. Awesome. <laughs> on on that HTTPS thing, uh, one of the, the things that I, I like showing people because it blows their mind is one of the, the barriers I often hear to adoption is people go, well, it's slow, right? Like it's going to slow down my server and it's going to slow down my connection and I've got to wear that latency cost. Mm. Now, there's a really cool site that people are definitely going to want to try called HTTP versus HTTPS.com. So that's HTTP HTTPS.com. Okay. And you go to this site and it loads 360 little images over HTTP and it takes, at least on my Aussie connection, about 12 or 13 seconds. And then it says please try HTTPS and you click on a link and it loads the whole thing over HTTPS and it just flies and it's done in like one or two seconds. Right. And, mm. and people see this and they go, like, what is this magic? <laughs> Why is HTTPS so fast? And the nuance here is that the HTTPS test uses HTTP 2 instead of right. 1.1. And I show people this uh, and Sometimes, I don't know if, if people know this, but sometimes people on the internet get upset. And <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's crazy. People on the internet got very upset with me when I shared this because they said, it's not fair, you're not comparing HTTP with HTTPS, you're comparing HTTP v1.1 with v2. Yeah, this is not a fair test. But the interesting nuance here is that every modern browser today supports HTTP2 but right. they only support it over HTTPS. Right. You cannot use HTTP2 over an insecure connection. And that the relevance of this to the speed aspect is that when we use HTTP2, we can get a binary stream of content. Right. And the really interesting thing is if you do this test, open up your dev tools, look at the waterfall chart, and have a look at how those images are loaded. Because in the old protocol, in, when we're doing the insecure HTTP thing, it's very waterfall, right? Yeah. So we see this kind of staggered selection of images coming down. And then when you see it over HTTPS with HTTP2, 
there's just this binary stream and there's all this asynchronicity of content downloading at the same time. Mm. And that's a really cool thing because you're getting secure and you're making content a lot faster too. Yeah. But I think it, we're just getting to a place now where we're setting up these protocols to default to security because that is just not where the internet came from. Yep. Well, we, we've got a while to go too. So we, we're still in this situation at the moment where if you type in uh, www.whatever.com, your browser is going to try and request that insecurely. So right. it's going to default to HTTP. And then what's going to happen is that if the site tries to enforce HTTPS, your browser's then going to get an HTTP 301 normally back, and it says, hey, go and request the same URL but over HTTPS. And and that still leaves us vulnerable because that first request is insecure. But we also have HSTS, which is HTTP Strict Transport Security. And what HSTS does is it says, hey, once you've loaded this site securely, never load it insecurely again, at least not for some certain period of time. Right. Okay. Now – this That's is really good. cool because this is just a response header. Yeah. Okay, so you add this one response header and then it, most people sort of set it for around about a year. So, okay, for the next year, don't do it again. And then people go, okay, well, I've got to get the response header though, right? So the first time I go to the site, it's insecure. But you can preload it as well. And, and what that means is is that when you return this response header, there's just one little keyword you put on there. It's just a preload keyword. And you can then go and preload it by submitting it to this service that the Chromium project runs, just do a, a search for HSTS preload. You submit your site, they go to your site and they go, is this site returning an HSTS header? Are they returning the preload keyword and a few other things? And if you are, they will bake your domain name into the binaries of the file, not just for Chrome, but for Internet Explorer, Firefox, they all support it. And what it means is, is that all of these people downloading browsers literally have your website hard-coded into the browser with a directive saying, only ever make secure requests. Mm -hmm. And that's awesome. That's a really great way of going secure. Yeah. 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 No, it's a, it's a, and just a good practice all around. Um, not to toot an old horn, but at Strange Loop, back when there was a Strange Loop, we were, I think we were one of the very first people to implement Speedy, which is the precursor to HTTPS, yeah. or HTTP2. And of course, required HTTPS for everything. Uh, it's and it's another solution, you know, that you can get a load balancer or a piece of hardware that sits in front of your site and can handle those protocols. So you can get the performance benefits as well as the the encryption. You just like there's no way through this without being encrypted. Now you're giving all your secrets away, Richard. <laughs> yeah, well, it's Radware's now, and they still use it, yeah. which makes me feel good. Yeah. But uh, it, you know, definitely worked. There is more than one way to do this. Although, let's face it, turning HTTPS on a web server is just not that hard. Yeah. Getting HTTP two is a little more challenging because I think it's only in Server twenty sixteen that we have HTTP two on by default. Yeah, so th this is this is sort of the catch now. So I'll, I'll tell you the bad news and I'll give you the good news. So you, you're right in that at least for the Microsoft stack, it was Server 2016, which was last year, which gave us iOS 10, which has HTTP2 support. Right. Uh, and even today in Azure, if you're using the app service in Azure, you, you can't get HTTP2. And you sort of go, oh, well, that's a shame. I'm, I'm missing the good bits. But I mentioned Cloudflare earlier on, and I've been using a lot of Cloudflare for a lot of things lately. And they have a really neat service that you can get for free. They've got commercial plans too if you want more features. But say for my blog, if anyone goes to troyhunt.com, that's using Cloudflare's free service. And what they do is that they're a reverse proxy. And they've got 110 edge nodes around the world. So almost certainly an edge node close to where, where you are now, whoever's listening to this. Mm. And when you make a request, you're hitting one of their edge nodes They'll try and serve stuff from cache. You can configure all of that as well, how aggressively you cache things. So it means people are going to get something very fast locally. It's going to take a lot of load off your Origin website because a lot of these requests are now coming from cache, particularly the static stuff like images and style sheets and so on. Right. They'll give you a certificate for free as well. So you're getting HTTPS and they support HTTP too. So for projects like my Have I Been Pwned, that's running on Azure, which doesn't support HTTP2, and it sits in the West US data center. But people all the way around the world are getting the vast majority of requests from somewhere that's geographically very, very close to them. They're getting it over HTTP2, and they're getting it from a service that you can get into for free. Now, is this Cloud Player or Cloud Front? Cloud Flare. Cloud so Cloud Flare. Flare okay. 
Yeah, correct. And, and you know, interestingly, I, I actually did a course on them a few years ago on Pluralsight. And at the time, they were serving something like five trillion requests a month. And it was either them or Facebook who was the largest property on the web wow. because they've got thousands, tens of thousands of websites that sit behind them. With the power of Azure. Nice. I gotta love that. Pretty awesome. Well, so so they, I mean, they run independently of, of Azure, but if Azure, Azure, I'm, I'm Australian, I don't know. That's all right. Uh, so, so the but what you do is you might have your Azure website, which is sitting behind Cloudflare. And, and what I really like is kind of using these technologies in, in unison to get the best of both worlds. So I love having the availability and the, the easy scalability and all that sort of thing of Azure. But I love putting something else in front of it to take off a bunch of load and serve all my HTTPS. And, and it also does a bunch of uh, firewall and other security bits and pieces as well. So oh, yeah, it's, it's a really neat service. They actually have a page where they, they have a product called DDoS Protection for Microsoft Azure for a Microsoft Azure hosted website or application. Well, one of the, the big things that they became famous for was, was DDoS protection. And they, they've got the largest infrastructure out there. Uh, I, I think them and Akamai are probably vying for that. But certainly in terms of, of a, you know, primarily acting as a reverse proxy, yeah. uh, they're a massive player. And what I like about it, the way I've sort of used that in unison with, with Azure as well is I've been increasingly using free stuff in Cloudflare to stop me paying for commercial stuff in Azure. And a really good example of that is I, uh, I did a, a talk at the, the Global Azure Bootcamp uh, on the weekend, which we, we had all the way around the world, and I did it here in Brisbane. And someone said, oh, do you use the CDN in Azure? And I said, well, I, I used to use it, so I would put all my images and so on in the CDN. But the thing is, is that Azure's got some number of dozens of data centers around the world, which is a lot less than what Cloudflare has got. And then you pay for the traffic, and then depending on the zone that you're in, you pay even more for the traffic. So if you're serving requests from Latin America in particular, you'd pay quite a premium. But if I serve it through Cloudflare, then I've got a lot more edge nodes, and it's free, and I like free. Yeah. <laughs> you know, wow. and I like going faster. <laughs> wow, good. interesting. Nice. Good stuff. So uh, I guess we're going to see you in Oslo, my friend. Yeah, I'm actually getting ready for a six-week European trip, of which Oslo is sort of bang in the middle. So I'm going to be all over the place uh, from the end of May to the start of July. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll see you there. And hopefully for us, there'll be stuff to talk about, but not for the world. <laughs> <laughs> you know there will be. There always is. Yeah, There always is. All right. It's true. Thanks again, Troy. It was great talking to you again. Thanks, guys. See you both soon. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got to transmit a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard.